In the name of the living God, who was and is and is to come. Amen. Earlier this summer, while the General Convention was meeting, I got involved in a fascinating and somewhat frustrating Facebook exchange about some of the figures commemorated in the Episcopal calendar. The discussion started because of a convention resolution proposing to remove William Porcher DuBose, a 19th century theologian, from the calendar. It turns out that besides being a theologian and seminary professor at Suwannee, DuBose was also a chaplain in the Confederate Army. His family enslaved more than 200 people. And what's more, after the Civil War, he produced some non-theological writings in favor of white supremacy, promoting the notion of the lost cause, and celebrating the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. I must say I am deeply relieved that the resolution to remove him passed, albeit as trial use for the next three years as we are wont to do with liturgical things. Also to my relief, no one on the Facebook thread was actually arguing in favor of DuBose being someone Episcopalians should be celebrating or emulating. What he supported both explicitly and implicitly continues to warp and damage our country and our church, and it seems right to remove him, which says nothing at all about God's grace extended to him. But what was interesting was a conversation about other figures in the history of the church. My colleague Tobias Haller wrote, I just want to remind you that it was St. Gregory the Great's involvement in purchasing slaves for the papal household that eventually inspired him to send the mission to England that led ultimately to the present reality of Anglicanism and the Episcopal Church. I inquired whether Gregory's experience had caused any change of heart about slavery, and Tobias commented that slavery was like wallpaper in the ancient world and in the early church. Gregory lived, after all, in the sixth century of the Common Era. Tobias argued that it was so much a part of the culture and economy that a world without slavery was basically unimaginable to early Christians. Rather like a world without banks would be to us, another colleague suggested. Indeed, the only theologian I know of who spoke against slavery in this period and did so clearly and forcefully on the basis that human beings are created free and belong only to God was Gregory of Nyssa in fourth century Cappadocia. I'm not a specialist on the Cappadocian theologians by any means, but no one I found seems to know how Gregory came to this moral awareness, which appears to be unique for many, many centuries of Christian theology. The other question I began to ponder as a result of this long Facebook chat was when Christians did begin to take a moral stand against slavery. 
My colleagues thought perhaps it was as late as the 18th century, maybe beginning with Quakers. Certainly, there were some voices before the American Revolution who insisted that slavery was wrong. And of course, it depends on whose voice you listen to, right? Some formerly enslaved people, like the Episcopal Church's first black priest, Absalom Jones, who was born in slavery in 1746, bought his freedom in 1784, and was ordained in 1804, preached powerfully that slavery is hateful in the sight of God. He knew. The abolitionist movement in this country began in earnest in the late 18th century. There were certainly some Episcopalians involved in anti-slavery work, but our church as a whole was hardly a theological or political force for liberation. In fact, it refused to take a position on slavery, even up to the Civil War, for fear of division. So our own efforts at self-examination, at reckoning with racism and the legacy of slavery, our own attempts to make reparation here in the Diocese of New York and across the Episcopal Church are much needed. Thank God for them. I remembered that Facebook conversation and all my questions about how we are limited by our culture and how we sometimes can transcend it, about how to think about our forebears in all their complexity, flaws, and gifts, and about how the oppressive wallpaper of history and culture actually do change. As I read our lessons for this morning, in particular, Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon is the shortest book in the New Testament. In fact, we read all but four verses of it this morning. It gives a fascinating window into Paul's relationship with a church leader he must have known very well, someone who was prominent enough to have a church meet in his house. It raises some troubling questions. Paul begins in a familiar way. He greets Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people, a whole community of church leaders, that Paul knows and loves. He assures them of his prayers and he thanks God for them and their faith. He is an old man now, and he's writing to them from prison, where he also says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Presumably, his gospel preaching has been enough of a threat to the Roman Empire to land him there. He writes most especially to Philemon, I have received much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. And now we come to the real issue of the letter. Paul is writing about Onesimus, Philemon's slave, whose very name means useful. Reluctantly, Paul is sending him back to Philemon. It's not clear what Onesimus's circumstances are. Many readers assume that he ran away, but some commentators suggest that Philemon sent him to help Paul while the latter was in prison. 
In any case, Paul says he loves Onesimus dearly. Onesimus is a Christian, perhaps converted during his time with Paul, who describes him as my child, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Of the decision to return him to Philemon, Paul says, I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus no more as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, to welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul also says he will pay any debts Onesimus owes Philemon. In the Roman Empire, slavery was often brutal, but it was not based on race, nor was it necessarily lifelong or hereditary. People were often enslaved because they were captured in war or because they could not pay overwhelming debt. Maybe this is Onesimus' circumstance. Is Paul offering to buy his freedom? This book, apart from the book itself, has a disturbing, ambiguous history of interpretation. In 19th century America, it was often used to justify slavery, including fugitive slave laws. Since Paul doesn't denounce the institution as incompatible with Christian faith, nor does he support Onesimus in running away or insist that Philemon free him. On the other hand, this letter was also used by abolitionists to support the cause of emancipation. They pointed to the complete change in the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus that Paul was calling for, a relationship that includes a new commonality in Christ. How, if these are now brothers in Christ, can the old hierarchy of master and slave endure? I wish that Paul had made the gospel mandate of liberation plain. I don't know if it was completely plain to him. Probably it wasn't. At least not in the same way that the eradication of the separation between Jews and Gentiles was clear. It's as if the gospel is working on him and he's still in process. Here, as in other areas, he reflects his own culture and priorities and historical limitations. I wish that he had called for a systemic abolition of slavery, but expecting, as he did, the imminent return of Christ, political change was not Paul's concern. And yet, and yet Paul clearly knows that the gospel has birthed a new relationship between him and Onesimus, just as it opens up new relationships between all who are baptized into Christ and reflects God's intention of love and justice for the whole creation. He urges Philemon to receive Onesimus as his beloved brother, because this is what Paul has discovered that he is. How did this awareness come to Paul? Was it through his conversations with Onesimus in his imprisonment? Conversations which made him see the slave's full human dignity, gifts, and struggles? Was it some solidarity born of Paul's own vulnerability and suffering? Was it theological? 
How have you come to recognize someone previously seen as other, as the brother or sister, God's beloved and thus worthy of your love and care and respect? The gospel of love and liberation is trouble. Good trouble, as John Lewis would have said, requires a radical change between Philemon and Onesimus. Will Philemon be able to embrace what Paul asks, what the gospel asks, or will he cling to his privilege, his understanding of how the world is and his place in it? Paul writes the letter to Philemon, but he includes the whole church community. Presumably, they will all be watching. How will they respond? How are they implicated? I wonder how Philemon responded. I hope he was able to risk a new relationship with Onesimus with all its unknown consequences. But what would it mean for him to receive his former slave as family? I also wish we could hear from Onesimus. What kind of letter would he have written about his situation? His voice, his faith, and his choices are missing from the narrative, and his fate is being decided by two powerful church leaders. Yet he's the one at risk if Philemon refuses to do what Paul asks, whether it be because of concern about the state of his household, or economic reasons, or protecting his own status and ego. How did Anisimus feel about being sent back? and about the possibility of a totally different kind of relationship with Philemon and his household. Did he seek this reconciliation in Christ? Or did he mistrust Philemon's ability to change? Without suggesting a false equivalence, Philemon's liberation is at stake, as well as Anisimus's. Philemon's salvation and Onesimus's are bound up together. As I said, the gospel is trouble. It's alive, working, and transforming. It upsets the status quo for love. We never grasp it in totality. Yet like Philemon, and yes, like Onesimus, we are called to a sometimes costly, arduous, and long journey. Sometimes one we choose, and sometimes, frankly, one that seems forced on us towards the full freedom of Christ. I believe this is the cost that Jesus is telling us to consider in today's gospel. Of course, it's not that we are to hate our families in the sense of living in emotional rejection, dislike, and bitterness. Rather, Jesus is using the hyperbolic, shocking language to get us to examine our priorities and our readiness for discipleship. What gives us identity and security? Is it our family connections, our status, our professional position, our money, our stuff? Are we constrained by a way of seeing ourselves and the world that is too small, too rigid, somehow resistant to the troubling grace of the gospel? 
Are we limited by cultural assumptions? Are we blind to injustice as just the way things are? When Jesus says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions, it seems impossible, unreasonable. But what do we cling to in a way that becomes deadening and soul-killing? What keeps us defended against loving and being loved by God and others? When Jesus speaks of taking up our cross, he means following in his way of justice and love with all its costly and life-giving consequences. The cross we carry is the cross of our own lives, our own particular gifts and responsibilities and challenges our own vocation in the gospel context of a love that breaks down barriers and builds beloved community. This is true if the vocation we are talking about is a commitment to another person or parenting or creative work or addressing our own healing. It's true in expressing compassion for a lonely neighbor or advocating for reproductive rights. It's surely true of combating racism or teaching kids welcoming refugees, or caring for the earth. A vital part of our vocation, our discipleship, is letting go of what keeps us stuck, of being ready to open to the unknown and learning to live with deep, deep generosity in serving something much larger than our own ego or status or safety. Letting grace pierce the wallpaper giving ourselves in service to the realm of God, the loving way of Jesus. There are doubtless gospel truths that we, limited by our culture and history, cannot yet see or see fully. There are also truths that are all too obvious, actions that are very clear. Taking up our own cross includes discerning what is the next right thing to do on the long, arduous journey, which is also an adventure of grace. So friends, as we look to this fall, I hope that we will hear the call to discipleship and consider soberly our priorities and our response. The gospel brings trouble. There is so much need, there is so much to do, and there is also so much joy in responding in love. Amen.